Well, good morning. Glad you are here this morning. Uh, This season of the year is the season that we call Lent, uh, the season that leads up to Easter. Easter is uh, is just seven weeks away. It's going to be April 12th this year. And it is so easy for us to get busy in the springtime. There are all these activities that we have going on. And then Easter kind of sneaks up on you. And the, oh, wait, today's Easter Sunday. And so we want to prepare our hearts for uh, the Easter season, which is seven weeks away. So we're going to start a new series. And the new series is called Cross Connections. And in this series, we're going to take different people who are around the passion story, or maybe they're at the foot of the cross. And we're going to try to see ourselves in the people who are there with Jesus and the days before he was crucified and on the day of his crucifixion. And so we're, um, we're going to do that over the course of the next, uh, the next six, six, seven weeks. And this morning we want to talk about three enemies of Jesus, three enemies, Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod, who were people defined by the choices that they made at a very, very crucial moment. So uh, I want to take you back to uh, the summer of 1995, Red River, New Mexico. Cindy and I and our family are there with some friends, and these friends of ours had hiked up Wheeler Peak the day before, and we thought, well, they did it, we're going to do it too. And so we went to the local uh, guide shop, backpacking shop, got a mimeographed, remember when that people used to mimeograph stuff? Some of, some of you don't know that, what that word means. It was a Xerox copy, I should say, of how to get up to Wheeler Peak. So we got that copy, and we set off. We went to a place called, called there's, there's, there's Wheeler Peak right there. That's, that's where we're headed to. We started off at a place called Middle Fork Lake, and it's aptly named because once you get there, you can either go left to go up one mountain or right to go up another mountain. And we sat on the log and we looked at this hand-drawn map and this Xerox copy of the directions. And we thought, huh, it's kind of unclear. So we read it over again and we, took, we made a decision. One way takes you to Wheeler, another way takes you to another mountain. We went the other way. So we started, started walking, and these directions were so unclear that we thought we saw all the landmarks. It said, there's going to be a big rock in the middle of the path. We thought we saw it. It said, there's going to be a nice, broad, open meadow. We thought, hey, there, there it is. The path up the mountain starts above the tree line. We thought, well, I guess, guess here it is. So we start climbing. And it gets steeper and steeper and steeper. And pretty soon, we're, we're, we're like this. And I'm thinking, this is a technical climb. And I know that couple yesterday didn't do that. They said it was much easier than this. So we, we got to the top, and we realized we were on Fraser Mountain, not Wheeler Peak. So we thought, huh, there's the Towski Valley right down below us. That's not, this, is not, this is not Wheeler Peak. This is someplace else. So we came down, and uh, we had a good laugh over it until some native Red Riverites said, are you kidding me? 
You went up Fraser Peak? That's like a technical climb. Why did you do that? Did you have technical stuff? No. And we had four young kids, you know, which was not a good idea. But we were defined by the choices that we made right there at Middle Fork Lake. We were defined by those choices. And I will tell you that life is the exact same way. Choices that we make, not only do they define us, but they set us on a course toward a destination. Our choices do something even more than that. Our choices influence the central part of us, which the Bible calls the heart. The heart is also the place the Bible calls the spirit or the will. Spirit, heart, and will are the same idea in the Bible. It's the executive center of our life. And the executive center of our life is the place from which we make choices. And with every choice we make, we are defining and shaping that executive center into something other than what it was before. And what we see with Caiaphas, Pilate, and Herod are three people whose hearts had been shaped by decisions that made them unable to respond to Jesus. So we're going to look at these three men this morning, Caiaphas, the high priest, Pilate, the governor, and Herod, who was the, the leader over the northern and the eastern region. We start with the story of Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the high priest who sentenced Jesus to death. And we see the climax of his story in Matthew 26, 65. Here's what it says. Then the high priest tore his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. So who is this guy who just sentenced Jesus to death? Well, I want to take you back to the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to imagine that you were with the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that Jesus was betrayed. And down below you, you hear in the valley a posse of thugs and soldiers coming up the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane. And while you're there, you see Judas, your former colleague, give Jesus a hypocritical hug and kiss and then Jesus is bound and detained, and you flee into the night. Because that's what all the disciples did. They fled into the night. Jesus is taken down through the Kidron Valley. He's taken to the western part of Jerusalem. He's taken up these very steps. These are first century steps up to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Once Jesus arrives in the house, he realizes that the entire leadership structure of Israel is there. All the Sanhedrin is there. And it's absolute chaos. It's chaos. It's a completely illegal trial. And everybody's yelling back and forth at each other, accusing Jesus of all these things. And Jesus says, not a word. Not a word. And then, and then, the high priest put him under oath. The high priest said, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. By saying those words in that formula, he put Jesus under oath. And now Jesus has to respond. And so Jesus, in his response, essentially says, you say what you say is right. 
all it says in the original language is, you say. That was the formula for saying, what you said is exactly right. Meaning, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, I am the King of whom Daniel spoke, and pretty soon you're going to see me seated at the right hand of power. Well, as you can imagine, the high priest completely freaks out. Completely freaks out. And is very upset, and he he says, we need no more witnesses. He, he deserves death. So this man who should have led the nation to receive its Messiah is the one who sentences that very Messiah to death. Now let's, let's think for a moment about, about what happens next. This is not in the Bible, but archaeologically what people sense is that Jesus was detained in the prison below Caiaphas's house. Here it, here it is. Uh, it's the underground prison underneath Caiaphas's house. We see it every time we go to Israel. We're going to Israel in October. We're going to see it again in October. It's a big dungeon. Does that seem weird that the high priest has a dungeon underneath his house? Extremely weird. Extremely weird. But that's because this guy is all about, all about making certain decisions. So, so who was this guy? Caiaphas. Well, in the first century, the high priesthood was controlled by the Romans. The Romans wanted a submissive high priest. The Romans appointed a guy named Annas, and when Annas got too old, Annas sought to have his son-in-law placed as high priest, and that was Caiaphas. Caiaphas normally would have only had it for three years, but Caiaphas was a very shrewd operator, and he maintained the high priesthood for about eight years. That means that he knew how to game the political system. And you wonder, is, is there any warmth to this guy? Any spiritual warmth at all? I mean, he's the high priest. Any warmth to him at all? No. He's a Sadducee. Does not believe in miracles. Does not believe in the resurrection. Does not believe in the immaterial soul. He's in it for the power and if you were to sum up his life, it would, it would be this. His passion is religious prestige and power over the people. And because Jesus threatens his power, Caiaphas wants Jesus exterminated as quickly as is possible. Therefore, you can understand Caiaphas's blinding rage several months later. When Caiaphas hears rumors that Jesus has risen from the dead, Caiaphas sees that a disabled man is healed on the steps of the Temple Mount. Everybody in the city hears about this miracle. And the high priest calls the disciples in and he says, by whose name and by what power have you done this? And when they say it was by Jesus' power, he thinks, what? I thought I dealt with this guy. I thought I sentenced him to death. He was crucified. And now you're telling me that he's doing miracles? Through the disciples, he was fit to be tied. So what happened to Caiaphas in the end? Three years after Jesus is crucified, the Romans fired Caiaphas. They terminated him as high priest. And not too many years later, he died at the relatively young age of 60. Here's a man who sought power by condemning Jesus and he lost not only power, but he lost meaning in his life. Decisions matter. Decisions form us. The decisions that we make shift us 
into being a different person than we were before. Here's the second story, Pontius Pilate. Pilate is the man who let others decide what is arguably the most important decision of his life. And so we see Pilate's climactic statement in John 19, 15. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. That's an incredible statement. So these chief priests who were just in that room in Caiaphas' house condemning Jesus, the, the real king, are now saying to Pilate, we have, we have no king but Caesar. The rejection of Jesus is escalating in these days before his death. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So let's think about this background. Um, Jesus has been briefly in prison in Caiaphas' house. He is then released, and they escort him one mile from Caiaphas' house across the city to a place called the Antonia Fortress. It was a four-towered structure on the northern end of the Temple Mount, and that structure had towers so that the Roman authorities could look over the Temple Mount and monitor what was going on on the Temple Mount. Just like we have cameras, you know, looking down over things, they had towers. And so Pilate is addressing the people from the balcony uh, over the Temple Mount. And when they come to Pilate, they do this in a remarkably shrewd way. They say, this man, Jesus, has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is a Messiah, the king. That was a very shrewd way of talking about Jesus. They're trying to manipulate Pilate through their words to get Pilate to condemn Jesus. Not paying his taxes. The guy says he's a king. So Pilate um, tries to figure out who this guy Jesus is. And Jesus' answers confuse Pilate. So Pilate takes him inside the barracks, inside the Antonia Fortress, and Pilate has Jesus smacked around a bit. It's not the brutal beating before the crucifixion. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a smackdown designed to get the prisoner to tell the truth and to be submissive. Over the next 60 minutes, Pilate has six successive conversations with Jesus, all recorded in the Gospel of John, and he can't figure out who this guy is. And so he asks the crowds to basically help him out, to make the decision. Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests say, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. Pilate, incredibly, just like Caiaphas, sentenced Jesus to death. So again, just like we looked at Caiaphas' background, what's Pilate's background? Pilate's background is very interesting. Pilate was the governor of the largest part of Israel called Judea. His official title is procurator. And even though that was a really great title, this guy is filled with ambition. He wants more. He does not want to be in Israel. He wants to be in Rome. I'm sure you can understand this if you contextualize it to our day. Let's say that you had the choice of being the ambassador to Equatorial Guinea or to Germany. Which would you prefer? 
Most people would rather, have, rather be Germany. Let's say that you were given the ambassadorship, the choice of the ambassadorship of Belize or Great Britain. Which would you prefer? Some would prefer Belize because of the bone fishing. But a lot of people would prefer to be in Britain. Pilate is the same way. He's just consumed with ambition. He does not want to be in Judea. He wants to be very close to Rome, as close to Rome as he can possibly be. So Pilate does something very clever. Pilate decides, in order to curry favor with Rome, that he's going to rebuild Caesarea by the sea. Caesarea by the sea is on the shore, and his, his palace was actually a seaside palace. That's only half of it, what you see on the screen. The other half jutted way out into the Mediterranean Sea. It was beautiful. And Pilate says, I am going to beautify Caesarea by the sea, Caesarea named after Caesar, and I'm going to make it so beautiful that the Romans have to appoint me to a position in Rome. We see that in this thing called the Pilate inscription. The Pilate inscription is an inscription where Pontius Pilate's name is actually on the inscription, and his name is on there, and it's associated with the name of the emperor. This guy really wants to be promoted, so he's doing everything he can to get there. Does this guy really care about his real job, which is to lead Judea from Jerusalem? No. He's got two houses, a house in Caesarea, a house in Jerusalem. He'd much prefer to be in Caesarea, not Jerusalem. This guy is all about career advancement. And so this whole Jesus thing is an irritant. He can't figure out who this guy is. He didn't really care about local politics. He just wants somebody else to make this decision. So what's the theme of his life? The theme of his life is prestige and prosperity and career advancement. And what happened to him in the end? Well, in the years following, he became obsessively bloodthirsty. So much so that um, after Jesus was crucified, there was an uprising in Samaria. And he sent a contingent of cavalry, uh, soldiers up that area and he slaughtered all the people who were headed up there. Well, that caught the attention of his superiors. His superiors called him back to Rome. They fired him on the spot. And he committed suicide the next year. So, so far we got, we got two guys who made choices. One was fired, died 10 years later. The other was fired committed suicide, and what we see is decisions matter. What you choose makes a difference in your life. Now we see the, the third guy here, which is Herod Antipas. Here's a man whose excitement quickly turned into contempt. When you dig into the details of the passion story, what you realize is that Jesus was tried in front of Pontius Pilate two times. In between the two trials, he went cross town to Herod Antipas's citadel. And here's the reason why. Pilate is thinking, I don't want to make this decision. This is so frustrating. I don't care about local politics. And Jesus is a Galilean, so I'm going to send him to Herod Antipas, who's from Galilee, who rules over Galilee, and let Herod decide what he's going to do. And so he sends him, he sends him cross town. So he goes, Jesus goes cross town under guard and 
we get this impression that Herod knows that he's coming and that Herod is, is very excited about Jesus coming. We see that in Luke 23, 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad because he had long desired to see Jesus because he had heard about Jesus and was hoping to see some sign, some miracle being done by him. So I just find this almost comical because in the original language, the word very glad means to be beside yourself with joy. It means to be gleeful. It's like, all right, finally, I'm going to see a miracle. Been hearing about these, and I'm finally going to see one. And the, the word to see in this context means to eagerly scrutinize. So Herod wants to see a miracle and be excited and scrutinize. How does this guy do this? It's like you going to a magic show and seeing something in the magic show and thinking, how in the world does that guy do that? I'm going to get him to tell me. And Herod Antipas had all the power. And I'm sure he's, he's thinking, I'm, I'm going to get him to show me how to do this. This is awesome. But, you know, Jesus is not like a, contester, a contestant on Israel's Got Talent, where he can, he's going to do a miracle on command just because he's been asked to do that. Jesus does not do a miracle on this occasion, and as Herod keeps peppering Jesus with questions, Jesus remains completely silent. That infuriated Herod. Nobody stayed silent in front of this great leader. It infuriated him. And so the leaders who took Jesus over to Herod's citadel, they're all Sadducees. They don't believe in miracles. And I can just imagine these guys saying, the Bible doesn't say this, but I can imagine this, these guys saying, see, we told you he was a fraud. We told you this guy's a fraud. The Bible doesn't say that, but you can just imagine that that perhaps was said. And all the way back, Jesus is now being mocked by the soldiers who are escorting him from Herod's citadel back to Pontius Pilate, back to the Antonio Fortress. So we looked at Caiaphas's background and Pilate's background. What's Herod Antipas's background? Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the guy who killed all the babies in Bethlehem just uh, after Jesus was born. He was a tyrant. He was a very evil man. But Herod the Great was incredible for this one reason. He was a builder, an architect, and a transformer of the landscape. And he was such a genius uh, in this skill that it, he was like a, like a Mozart he was like a, a Michelangelo. He was like a, a Monet. He was a genius designer, architect, and builder. I mean, absolutely the best the world has ever seen. Incredible. So his son, Herod Antipas, is also a gifted designer, architect, and builder. And while Jesus is ministering in Capernaum, you could look across the lake at Tiberias and see all the cranes building this. No, I'm kidding. But you could see Tiberius in the process of being built. So Jesus is ministering in Capernaum. You look across the way and you see Tiberius being built up as a city 
on the lake. And what's interesting is that it's possible that people were praying for Herod Antipas that he would come to Christ. I say that because Herod had a property manager whose name was Chusa. Chusa enjoyed vast responsibilities in Herod Antipas' household. Like he managed the lake house, he managed the mountain chalet. It wasn't really a chalet, it was a desert mountain place called Masada. He managed all of Herod's properties. We're talking castles, amazing things. Chusa's wife is named Joanna. In Luke chapter 8, 1 through 3, we find out that, that Joanna became a full-time follower of Jesus. So think about this. While, while Herod is building his city on the other side of the lake, and Chusa is managing the properties on the other side of the lake, Joanna is with Jesus, following Jesus full-time as a full-time follower of Christ. And you can imagine that the stories filtered from Joanna to Chusa, and there were people praying for Herod Antipas that things would change. What's the theme of Herod's life? That's easy, because Jesus tells us. Jesus tells us that Herod Antipas was a fox. A fox. Here's the verse. Jesus says, go tell that fox. I'm going to keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. Now, when we think about the word fox, we think somebody who is street smart and savvy and cool, right? That's not how they thought about it in the ancient world. In the ancient world, if somebody called you a fox, you would say that he was sneaky, lying, deceiving, dishonest, manipulating, only for personal advancement. And so that's Herod Antipas. Like his father, Herod Antipas was coming, devious and smart, but it was all narcissism. It was all narcissistic trickery. That's Herod, that's Herod Antipas. So what happens to Herod in the end? Five years after Jesus is crucified, the Roman emperor exiles Herod Antipas to the province of Gaul, which is modern-day France. And when he was exiled, the moving vans did not come with Herod and his wife because every shred of his personal property was confiscated and given to his nephew, Herod Agrippa I. So um, here are three people, three people who made choices and they were defined by their choices. So let's, let's think about this idea. Three stories, three enemies, one theme, and the theme is decision. It's all about the choices that we, that we make. Now, why do I say decision? Because these decisions were all made in the midst of trials. The trial at Caiaphas' house, the trial at Pilate's house, the trial at Herod's house. And what do you do in a trial? In a trial, you make decisions that are going to alter the course of somebody's life. These guys have this theme. What decision am I going to make? When Jesus showed up in, in these guys' lives, they had a decision. What am I going to do with Jesus? Will they become angry because he interferes with my lust for power? That's Caiaphas. Will they become irritated because he interferes with my career aspirations? That's Pilate. Am I interested only in Jesus because of the miracles that he might provide? That's 
Herod. Each of these guys had personal issues that led them to resist and ultimately to reject Jesus. So we're not enemies of Christ, right? We're friends of Jesus. We're not his enemies. We're his friends. Nevertheless, the same principle applies. Jesus will show up in our life with his lordship claims. And Jesus will say, Rod, I'm lord over your career. He'll say to you, I'm lord over your money. I'm lord over your marriage. I'm lord over your body. I'm lord over your sexuality. I'm lord over what you see with your eyes. I'm lord over the totality of your life. And when Jesus shows up with his lordship claims, well, what are we going to do? Are we going to resist and reject those claims? Or are we going to be open, curious, interested, and find out how those lordship claims apply to our life? Here's the sobering reality. Each time you make a decision, you are being formed by those decisions. Now, I want to read to you something that C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Weight of Glory. I love this quote. I've read this many times. C.S. Lewis says this, each time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your whole life, your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning this central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven, that is joy, peace, knowledge, and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. You know, he's talking to people who, who were when he said this, who are nominal Christians. We can look at this as followers of Christ and say that same thing happens with us. Every choice we make, big, medium, little, we are doing something to our chooser. We have a chooser inside. It's called our spirit, our heart, our will. Every time we make a decision, we are shaping our chooser so that the next decision gets a little bit easier. And the next decision after that gets a little bit easier. Now, this is not just a, a biblical idea. Um, it's an idea that is being explored widely today in psychology. Uh, three books that, are, that address this. Uh, Roy Baumeister's book called Willpower, a fabulous book. It's the guy, I don't know that he's a believer, but he writes a great book that is generally consistent with the Bible. Kelly McGonigal writes a book called The Willpower Instinct. Malcolm Gladwell deals with some of these things in some of his books, David and Goliath being one of them. It's the idea that I've got a chooser, and with my decisions, I'm shaping the health of my chooser one way or another. So here's, here's the core idea. Core idea is this. We live in Jesus' kingdom presence all the time. And Jesus is abiding with us. His spirit is inside us. And each moment we face a relational choice. And the choice is, do I turn toward Jesus? Do I turn away from Jesus? It's our choice. We get to decide. And that's a great privilege that we have to be able to decide 
these kinds of things. But this is first and foremost, it is, it is a choice that we're asked to make in the moment. Now, with that in mind, let's look at some takeaways. How do we make the decision to turn toward Jesus? Well, the first takeaway is this. Just be aware of when choices are coming up during the day. Let's say that I get hit with a set of circumstances that make me feel anxious. Anybody ever deal with anxiety in here? Anybody deal with any anxiety? Thank you for that one honest person who raised, <laughs> raised his, his hand, because I'll, 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 be I'll, be I'll be the second one. What do you do when you're seized with anxiety? Well, <clears throat> do you withdraw and become fearful? Do you lash out and get angry? What do you do with your anxiety? You're faced with a choice. And the choice, given what the Bible says, is that I turn relationally toward Jesus and I invite him into that anxiety in the moment. Case in point, two months ago, Cindy and I were on a date. And shortly after we sat down, she took a phone call on her cell phone. So she, was, she worked at Grace uh, for 20 years, and we had an understanding that we would probably receive phone calls at inopportune times. And it was going to be okay for us to take those phone calls if we asked permission of the other. So, um, and we would be okay with that. So on this particular day, I had some expectations. Got to, got to admit, had some expectations. We were out on a date, and she took a phone call, and I was mad. I was mad. And in that moment, I knew I had a choice. I knew I had a choice. And I was, Lord, I'm dealing with some anger here, but I'm thinking to myself, but you can be angry in this situation. Lord, I'm, I'm, I, I need some help here, but, but, but you deserve some attention here. I'm going back and forth, and I made the wrong choice. I got angry at her. And we spent the next hour talking through what happened, why I got angry, and what we do next time. But I made a choice in the moment to turn away from relationally to say, all right, Lord, I need your help. As I talk to her about this, I just, boom, I just got angry. Those choices pop up all the time. Taking offense looks like feeling entitled. It looks like feeling embittered. It looks like feeling put on. It looks like feeling like my rights have been violated. It looks like nobody understands me. Or it looks like making the wrong choice looks like ruminating over past hurts, deliberating over past pains. Or it, it looks like a lack of mindfulness where boom, we respond without, being, without pausing and being curious. So that's what turning away looks like. Turning toward Jesus is a relational choice. I invite him into my hurt. I invite him into my chaos. I invite him into my anxieties and my frustrations. And I just pause. I pause. And I say, Jesus, in this, in this space right now, I'm pausing. I'm turning toward you. And I'm, I'm receiving your help so that what I do next shapes my chooser in the right direction. So here's, that's takeaway number one. So here's takeaway number two. 
Takeaway number two is this. Choose a default response to God. Now, you know if you're in the Army or the Navy, you've got, you've got default responses. The Navy, it's hoo The Army, it's oorah. And if you're in the Army or the Navy and something happens, you know, your automatic default response, if you're in the Navy, is hoo Automatic. So when you face a choice during the day, it's important to have a default response to God that you always use. So what's that default response to God going to be? Well, it's going to be based upon 1 Thessalonians 5.17. In everything, give thanks. He doesn't say, when things are going well, give thanks. When things are going your way, give thanks. When things are awesome for you, give thanks. When you've had your narcissistic needs met, give thanks. doesn't say that. In everything, give thanks. That means my automatic default response to God when an issue comes up in my life, is, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And when that becomes your default response, it shapes your chooser on the inside. One of the things that radically impacted my relationship with my wife was that I began, this is, I mean, this is well over 15 years ago. I began including gratitude into my thought process with Cindy. And my gratitude towards Cindy shaped my chooser so that I found myself being a person who expressed gratitude for her. Not just in the good times, not just in the ordinary times, but even in hard conversations. That's the kind of person that I want to be. But I've got to, if I want to be that way, I've got to make those choices to become that. And that means I've got to shape my chooser. And that begins with the automatic default response of gratitude. What the cool thing about gratitude is that it makes you mindful in the moment. Anybody can lash out and respond to their emotions. But when you pause and you, you choose gratitude, you're choosing a mindfulness in the moment that shapes many, many good things in the course of your life. Third takeaway is this. Invite Jesus relationally into your situation, no matter how awkward it is. You know, we, we don't deal with things that are, that are always successful. It'd be great if we could. Just one unbroken string of success. Most of our lives include moments that are really awkward and sort of embarrassing sometimes. We put our best foot forward, you know, we put our best mask on, we manage our images, but sometimes our lives are awkward. And so the idea is, is invite Jesus into your life no matter how awkward things are. You remember the story in Mark chapter nine where a man's son was experiencing demonic convulsions and the boy would foam at the mouth and he would throw himself into the fire. Horrible situation. And um, the, Jesus approached the father and he said, all things are possible for the one who believes. And this man who was struggling mightily said, I do believe, but help me in my unbelief. And that's a wonderful pattern because let's say you face a decision and you're struggling with belief. You're saying, okay, Jesus, I, I know you can do this. Uh, I believe you can do this. Like, help me in my unbelief, because I, I waver. Can Jesus handle that? Yes, he can. He can handle that. He can handle that. Let's say you've really screwed up, and you've committed 
a sin that is going to have some ramifications for you. It's easy to turn away from Jesus in that moment and go, he's probably pretty mad at me right now. Probably didn't want to hear from me for maybe a week, maybe a month. I mean, I really, I really screwed this one up. No, that's not the right response. The response is, I immediately turn back to Jesus and say, Lord, man, I'm coming to you right away. You know, I'm coming to you like humbly, seeking your grace and your forgiveness and help. What you're doing is you're inviting Jesus into the chaos even of your sin. And then the fourth takeaway is that you anticipate the outcome. Back to C.S. Lewis's quote. Every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you into something a little different. And then he says, taking your whole life as a whole with all those choices, you're turning your, the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. So the outcome, anticipate the outcome. The outcome is, what kind of a person do you want to be? Do you want to be a person who resists Jesus, who shapes your chooser in a narcissistic direction? Or do you want to be the kind of person who turns toward Jesus and shapes your chooser into a place of power and freedom and honor and goodness and authority? That's what I love about, about the Christian faith, is that we have a choice about what we want to become. Here are, here are three men, Caiaphas, Pontius Pilate, and Herod Antipas, who so wanted power, and they didn't get it. Instead, they got, they got pain. They got heartache and sorrow. We have the opportunity as followers of Jesus with the Holy Spirit inside us, with the presence of Jesus around us, we have the potential of shaping our chooser and the power of the Spirit into people who have freedom and power and joy to be the people that God created us to be. That's the kind of person I want to be. That's the kind of person I hope you will become. That's the kind of church I want us all to be.